0: My name is Mohsen al I'm an associate professor at the University of Warwick School of Law and this is my podcast on international economic law. In this week's podcast, we examine the foundations of international economic law. I'm particularly interested in the political and normative questions that we ask when trying to regulate economic relations between nation states. So who should regulate them and how should they be regulated? I'm also interested in examining some of the assumptions, some of the theories that underpin the field. Now, of course, before we can delve too deeply into our study of international economic law, we're also going to consider some of the historical foundations, its starting point with the Second Great European War, the establishment of the United Nations, and the call then for greater international cooperation around the establishment of an integrated economic order. Now, uh, during that discussion, I'll point to some of the uh, challenges that emerged, particularly the competing ideologies that were at play, and that ultimately gave rise to the Cold War. Now, the challenges of both teaching international economic law, the challenges of developing international economic law, to me, are self-evident. And I'm sure you've picked up on it already. The rationale behind international economic law is very straightforward. It has to do with what you could refer to as the compression of time and space. How long does it take for you to send a message to a family member or a friend who is at the far end of the planet? And the answer is, what, 0.001 seconds? That is it. And if you were alive four generations ago, or let's say, Just go back to your grandparents' days. Forget four generations. Just go back to your grandparents. How long would it take for them to communicate with a family member elsewhere in the world? You're smiling. How long do you think it is? Days. Mm -hmm. Optimistic. (laughs) That is someone who has never used snail mail before. (laughs) Weeks? Months? I recall being a child. So we're going into the 80s not that long ago, and making a phone call from Canada to Egypt, where my family is, making a phone call and waiting for the connection, 45 seconds, and then it's like, Alo, <laughs> Aywa, and you're waiting and waiting, and then it gets disconnected, and then you sit and you wait, and maybe another hour someone else will call back, And maybe not, because that's it. The system is down. That is one generation ago. Time-space compression. For us to achieve that time-space compression, what we needed to do was to build a system, a network, that reaches globally, universally. But for us to build that network, It requires us to go beyond, to go through what we would have considered sacrosanct just a few generations ago. And what is that? Borders. I have to go through borders for communications, transactions, exchanges, for all of those to happen at the speed that you enjoy today. It requires us piercing through that anachronistic nation state system that has existed since the Treaty of Westphalia, so since the 17th century. We have to treat it differently. Anyone here ever sent money to someone abroad? Or, well, your students? Anyone here asked for money from someone abroad? Of course. And the question is, at what time is it going to be in my account? That is only possible because of the framework that has been built. But as we pierce through that, we create what is an interdependent system. That interdependency is what makes international economic law an inevitability if we are not if we are interested in building that type of a system it is essential that we cooperate and that cooperation was the basis of international economic law and yet because there's always a flip side interdependence is a source of challenge it is a source of challenge because We reject that dependence we have on others. We still live in nation states. You still have a passport that belongs to a nation state that provides you with permission to travel to other parts of the world. We are still bound within these borders because We retain a nationalist outlook, a nationalist mindset. What in political economy terms, which we'll come to shortly, is a mercantile mindset. We are still nationalists, not necessarily at heart, but certainly in practice. And what does a nation state seek to do? It seeks to maximize the advantages for its citizens it does so in the national interest just as you as an individual seek to maximize your self-interest your economic self-interest now how do we go about maximizing our self-interest how does a nation state maximize national interest well unfortunately In a world of finite resources, and as is evident to the world today, our resources are finite, we maximize our interest at the expense of others. So if we, to pursue, to maximize our interest, must do so to the detriment of others, then why would the other cooperate with us? It makes no sense. We would, of course, engage in negotiations with each one trying, ultimately, to bamboozle, to hoodwink the other. Because the focus is very much on maximizing my interest. Now, the advantage is that international economic law political economy more so than IEL, but certainly IEL is in there, has provided a response, an answer to that conflict. So what's the conflict? Each one of us is trying to maximize our self-interest. Each one is trying to maximize the national interest. Resources are finite. The only way that I can do that is at the expense of others. What does that mean? If I want more water, you must have less. That is it. Why? There's only so much fresh water in the world. Simple as that. So how do we resolve it? We resolved it with an assumption and with a theory. An assumption and a theory. Let's begin with the assumption. The assumption that was constructed in economic theory, the construction that was, assum- that was constructed is that prosperity is infinite. Prosperity is infinite meaning everybody can enjoy it there are some phrases that you will have heard before might ring a bell rising tides lift all boats rising tides lift all boats now that makes sense if anybody's been by the water and you see the tide rise if you've been at a pier you see all boats lift but what is the person who is saying that Demonstrating a very narrow, a very confused understanding of tides. Why? Because as these tides are lifting all boats in one part, what are they doing? On the other shore, at the other side of the lake, what is happening? They're lowering. lowering. That is the nature of water. There is only so much of it there. And so as it goes up in one place, it goes down in another. Because if all tides were always lifting, well, we would have gills. Trickle down theory. Some of you have heard of that one. As the wealthy make all of the wealth, precisely as the wealthy are making more money, it all trickles down to the poor. So everyone ultimately benefits. Prosperity is infinite. Now I'm presenting this in almost I'm caricaturizing it. I'm presenting it in this comical fashion and you're thinking it's not so serious. But no, in fact, if you read economic theory, neoliberal economic theory that today dominates, all of it is contingent on this assumption. Everybody will benefit. Everybody wins. I thought of this earlier as I was preparing the lecture. And I thought, how could I capture this? Because this has always been on my mind, or has been on my mind for a number of years since I started teaching international economic law. And I recalled a moment where I was with my daughter. She must have been about 10 at the time. And we were in a flat in Montreal. We were in Montreal. We're in this flat. It's on the 18th floor of a 20-floor building. And just across from the flat, at a 45-degree angle, there was a park. And in that park, there were a number of people who were sitting there, a number of people who were sleeping there. And one night, as we were standing then on the balcony, she turned to me and said, Daddy, why are those people sleeping in the park? This is why you never want to have an academic as a parent. Because the answer to this poor little 10-year-old was, they are sleeping in the park, so we can sleep in this flat. Their poverty is essential for our prosperity. The flip side to prosperity is poverty for the simple reason that resources are finite? So, how do we ensure that the value of our flat rises? It's by making sure that there are insufficient flats for everyone. Because if there are insufficient flats for everyone, well, now there are some who will pay more to get what is made scarce. But nobody says. That, that is a necessary component of the economic system that has been constructed, what we are told is that rising tides lift all boats. So that was the assumption. But then let's move to the second part, which is the theory. And the theory, which is well known, is a theory of comparative advantage. Theory of comparative advantage advantage and what does the theory of comparative advantage tell us the theory of comparative advantage tells us that countries reap gains remember maximizing the national economic interest countries reap gains by producing what they are best at producing and trading so should Britain grow bananas no why not The climate is not supportive of it. Should bananas be grown in the Caribbean? Yes. The climate is supportive. All right. Should bananas be grown in Korea? No. Unsupportive climate. Should mobile phones be built in Korea? Yes. Why? Koreans are technically savvy they would probably be able to turn on these lights. Okay, So we look then and we say, what you are good at, you should do. You maximize theory of comparative advantage. And then you trade what you produce with others. You produce them best. You are most efficient. You are most cost effective. So Barbados should not bother producing mobile phones. Instead, they should produce bananas, sell the bananas, and use the proceeds of the bananas to buy the mobile phones from Korea. Theory of comparative advantage. Makes sense. And the idea, the theory, which we'll come to a little bit more later, is that in the end, everything will even out. So how does this impact on international economic law Well, what we need to do then is to ensure the free movement of all of these goods and services. So if Barbados is great at producing bananas, produce those bananas, eliminate the tariffs on bananas in other parts of the world, and ensure then the free flow of the Bayesian banana. Ensure the free flow of the Korean mobile phone. So we need then openness, open borders, We need to promote free trade. Now, the assumption, all tides or tides lift all boats. Rising tides lift all boats. The assumption, prosperity is available for all. The theory, one of comparative advantage. You reap gains when you produce what you are best at producing. Those combine then to promote the idea of free trade, which is the foundation of international economic law. Makes sense. Let me ask you, would you prefer to own a plot of land where you're growing bananas, or would you prefer to own a factory that produces mobile phones? Pretty easy answer. And this is where the conflict returns. Because those who are being encouraged to simply grow bananas are going to point to the low added value the low sale price of bananas and say, in the end, I cannot sustain a population by growing bananas. Because the banana, you're paying how much for a bushel of bananas, a pound? Now imagine that. Think of that. You can go to the shop. You can buy four or five bananas for a pound. What is a pound to you? starving struggling indebted students that you are even to you a pound is virtually nothing the store has a markup on that pound and the markup in grocery stores on produce fresh produce is usually in the range of 30 to 40 percent so that means that they paid the distributor 60 P for those bananas but the 60 P that they paid for those bananas to the distributor has to factor in the fuel and the labor associated with the transport of those bananas from Barbados to the UK. I've flown to Barbados, lecturing at the University of West Indies. It's a 10-hour flight. Can you imagine how long it takes for a ship to arrive here, even with that time-space compression? The number of people who are on the ship, the refrigeration of the bananas to ensure that they don't spoil along the way. Now, the distributor is paying those costs. So that must mean that they're paying the farmers something less than the 60p for the four bananas. So how much do you have to sell your banana for for us to be able to pay a pound for five of them? Which points then to why farmers are the poorest of the poor well in fact the poorest of the poor are coffee farmers which is ironic if you think of Starbucks and Costa and Nero and then the second poorest farmers out there ready cocoa bean you're dreading that bar of chocolate you just ate earlier right yes chocolate they're the second poorest farmers in the world which makes sense because the added value on growing that is so low which is why, precisely, everybody would prefer to be making mobile phones. What is the markup on an Apple phone? Anyone know? Anyone? 78%. That is the return that Apple yields on an iPhone. 78%. And how much does a new iPhone sell for? 1,500 pounds. And you know the retailer is taking their cut also. So, in fact, the price of making that phone is ridiculously low. But it's being sold ridiculously high because that is the nature of the economic system that we have built. So the assumption and the theory work. The assumption and the theory are legitimate if we do two things. One, we depoliticize it. And we say that the fact that the the, the Bayesians are the ones growing the bananas and that the Koreans are the ones producing the mobile phone, that has nothing to do with politics. That is purely an economic reality. And two, if we suspend disbelief. And what do I mean when I say that? The idea that somehow Barbados, Bayesians, could one day be as prosperous then as Brits with the economic system that is in place. That is the only way that we can maintain the assumption and the theory through fiction. And that fiction is quite standard. And anyone here who reads the Financial Times, you read that fiction on the regular. If you watch the Andrew Marr show, hell, if you listen to Prime Minister's questions, you are subjected to that fiction on a daily basis. But then when studying international economic law, which is what we are doing here, we are interested in problematizing then the assumption and the theory, as the assumption and the theory, as I said, they point to openness. The idea that we should eliminate borders and allow the free for of goods because that, in the end, will lift all boats. Everyone will prosper. But if the assumption and the theory are fictitious, then necessarily the claim that everyone will prosper is also fictitious. Which then means that the laws that I have developed to or based upon this assumption and the theory are laws that are not going to allow everyone to prosper, but instead are laws that are going to allow some to prosper and others to suffer. So this takes us then to the starting point of international economic law.